0: Hello and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gussis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter and I'm here with Mike. Hey
1: everybody, welcome to another episode. Today we're looking at a recent release from Cool Mini or Not, Cthulhu Death May Die. Cool Mini or Not? I've never even heard of them before. Are
0: they a new company?
1: Oh, yeah, they're, they're this little tiny startup. Uh, they're, they're scrappy, and hopefully, they're going to make it.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I think they've changed their name twice already, too. You know, for such a small company, you'd think they'd uh, stay consistent, but they're Simon. Come on. Come on, man. Come on, come on. <laughs> oh, yeah, we
1: recently reviewed Zombicide Invader, and now we're trying out another one of their little miniature combat
0: games. Yeah, and in our design discussion, we're going to talk about Kickstarter in general and FOMO and exclusives. So probably not as much design as we normally talk, but just our feelings on those things in general. Yeah, and that'll be both our feelings as
1: designers who have been on Kickstarter ourselves. We've done two Kickstarters and then, of course, uh,
0: purchasers of Kickstarters (laughs) quite often should be good. It's getting wrapping up toward the end of the year. You know, I was a little worried about this year, but the last couple of reviews and the last couple of games we've gotten have been uh, pretty good. Yeah, and on that topic, this is the last game that we'll be able to
1: fit in before we do our year in review episode. So Cthulhu Death May Die may be in the running for one of the top games of 2019. Yeah, well, settle down there, buddy. (laughs) Uh, But real quick, we'd like to thank some of our amazing Patreon supporters. This week we'd like to thank Nick Skeen, who's a co-op lover, Jason, who's a co-op MVP, and John Plough, who's a co-op fan. Thank you to all of you for supporting the channel, both our YouTube content and our podcast. We're actually using the funds you all have put in to go to PAX Unplugged a little bit later this week as of this recording, and we're going to cover some great co-op and solo games there. We wouldn't be able to do that without you. So uh, yeah, thank you for your support, and uh, if you want to Throw us some money on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash one stop. Or if you want to support us in another way, please leave a review on uh, Apple or whatever other listening station you use for your podcast. Uh, we appreciate anything you'd like to give to our
0: channel. Absolutely. Well, with that out of the way, let's get on to Cthulhu Death May Die. All right, so I usually cover the background and theme, and I'll do that. And the theme for this is is interesting. It's unique, but not unique. You know, it's funny. When you look at the Arkham Files games from Fantasy Flight games, a lot of times you are fighting Cthulhu or you're fighting off these monsters. But they don't really put it that way. They really say, hey, you're trying to stop this ritual before it happens. And even if it does happen, then you end up, like, as a final, last stitch effort, have to kill this big baddie. Well, in this game, that's not the theme at all, even though it kind of is. In this game, you are investigators the same way you would be in any of those type games, but you're actually trying to disrupt the ritual. So that way, when the great old one comes to this earth, you still want him to come here, but when he comes, they'll be vulnerable and you'll actually be able to kill it and get rid of this horror forever. So it's a little bit different spin on things, but I I think it changes it up in kind of a neat way.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. This is definitely a change-up from the Arkham files from Fantasy Flight, which, as you said, is always about averting uh, the great old one appearing. And when they do appear in pretty much all of the games, even Arkham LCG, it's usually like a game-end condition or some terrible alternative where you can barely hope to survive.
0: Yeah, and you know, I always say I'm not like a big fan of the Cthulhu mythos, but I must be, because all of these games, I, I really like the gameplay, and I'm starting to get the background of some of these stories a little bit. i have never a Cthulhu reader, so when I come at it, I say, well, I'm not really a fan of the background, but at this point, I've played so many of the games in this universe, and I've liked most of them, that I really feel like maybe I am a fan of this material.
1: Yeah, the funny thing is this is probably the furthest of the games I've played in this mythos from the original H.P. Lovecraft stories, because except for in the actual Call of Cthulhu where somebody drove a ship into Cthulhu, (laughs) uh, they were always about, like, creeping horror and going insane and never really about fighting off the bad guys that much. So even the Fantasy Flight games are generally, like, too pulpy and action-packed to really match the source material well, but this one is, like, totally out there. But that being said, let's jump into the actual core mechanics of the game before we get to our review. So, A Game of Cthulhu Death May Die is played with between two to five investigators. So, even if you're playing solo, you have to control at least two characters. And it has sort of a modular deck system setup where you choose one Elder One, two come in the core game box, and you choose one of six episodes in the core game box. And those come together to form this mythos deck you'll be drawing from and determine which enemies will be in the battle. All that kind of stuff. Uh, you set up a tile-based board of multiple tiles. And the episode will have some kind of objective you have to achieve. Some unique objective that will uh, cause the Elder One to spawn so that you can attack them. And then, uh, at least so far with the one's release, you got to kill them three times and then kind of pop around and have increasing powers. But on an actual turn, uh, things are pretty simple. Kind of similar to Zombicide. Uh, you take three actions... And actions can include moving a certain number of spaces, attacking, you can heal yourself by resting. Then you'll draw a Mythos card, and these will generally do things like moving monsters toward you, um, attacking your sanity or your health or your stress, those are the three main tracks characters have, and they'll also spawn more monsters. And many of them will also work toward advancing the Elder One, because they have this track they're advancing down, and if they get too far they pop up even though you can't hurt them at that point, point. and also if they get uh, very far along that's a loss condition. Then the third phase of a turn, you see if there's any enemies on your space. If there are, they attack you. If there aren't, then you draw from this little discovery deck, which has some uh, negative and positive effects and items and allies you can gain to uh, help your character out. And then finally, you have the end-of-turn effect, where often the great old one will do some terrible thing to you. Uh, Besides that, I won't get into too many details, but it is a dice-based combat system and dice-based kind of skill resolution. You always roll these three black dice, which can drive you insane. And a thing that I'm sure at least one of us will talk about in the review is that as you go down this insanity track, again, very different from Fantasy Flight, you actually level up in sort of a zombicide-ish way where you kind of advance these uh, skills to get better and better powers. Uh, You level up as your sanity advances more, but if you go too far down the sanity track, you die. So uh, you have to kill the great old one. You want to not have all the characters killed or even one character killed before the old one spawns or you lose. Those are the basics. I think we'll cover the rest as we get
0: into the review. And I mean, as you could probably hear here, it's a pretty straightforward game. I mean, your actions are very limited. You know, Mike mentioned three. I think there are only four or five listed, like move, attack, rest, trade items, and do stuff that helps disrupt the ritual. I mean, that's basically it. So your your actions are pretty limited. So, Mike, with all that being said, why don't you get us started here today? Yeah, so for those who have not listened before or checked
1: out the YouTube channel, we do a five-point-based review. So we're each going to go through five elements of the game that we think are most important in the design or the experience. We're going to start with the number five, which is important, but the least important of the five, and work our way up to each of our number ones. These could be uh, positives, negatives, somewhere in between, and uh, then we'll give our final thoughts. So my number five is a pro and it's something I just mentioned and that's the uh, the sanity track and how it upgrades your characters. I think that the very idea of kind of being hurt and getting closer to death but that being the thing that levels you up is already kind of a fun twist on most games. I believe something similar was used in the others. I haven't played it so I can't verify but I've heard that about the game like this is sort of ported over from that. There was also something similar to this in uh, Aeon Trespass, a game that I covered on the YouTube channel uh, previously that's kind of based on Kingdom Death Monster. But yeah, I I like the general idea. I also think it is a fun kind of uh, resource management system. If you stop right next to kind of the trigger points that level you up, then uh, you can kind of control how quickly you go insane You have a lot of options to re-roll your dice, so if you roll the tentacle results that'll make you gain sanity, or I guess lose sanity, as it were, um, then you can kind of choose to re-roll those or not. So that's all pretty fun. Additionally, each character gets this unique uh, insanity card that will trigger every time they level up, and these are generally pretty fun because they have effects that could be positive or negative, either like depending on which situation you are in or which uh, space you're in in the board. So I I like that, that you can sort of try to set up when you're going to go insane and try to uh, use that to your advantage. I mean, thematically, it's a little weird. (laughs) I don't necessarily love that the game portrays mental illness as like this great thing, like losing your mind is making you more powerful. That's a little problematic. But in terms of gameplay, I find it very interesting.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good one. It will be on my list later, so I'm going to skip by it for now. But my number five is the characters themselves. And I know we talk a lot about characters when we talk about this, and, and I mean, I think this is one of the hallmark things about co-op games, is the characters in the games and their roles in these universes, and sometimes they're more diverse than others. And I think they actually do a really good job here of making their characters Diverse and unique. So every character has three skill bars. As your insanity goes up, you can level up in one of these three different areas. One of them is very unique to your character, and no other character is going to have a skill like it. The other two are from a general pool things like toughness, which make it harder to get hurt, or arcane ability, which makes some of the dice faces activate. So there are these three different tracks. Two of them are going to be more general and one of them will be unique to your character. But I think even without that unique bar, there is a uniqueness to the characters based on their set of skills. Like somebody who's tough and fast seems very different to play than somebody who is fast and stealthy and can get by enemies. So there are some neat combinations and some neat things you can do with these skill bars as you level up. Now, I will say it's not 100% a pro. I know a lot of people have said that there is some imbalance in the characters, and I do think there is definitely some imbalance between the characters, but I also don't think it's as big as a lot of people have said. Yes, some characters feel a little bit more powerful, and some skills feel a little bit more powerful, but for me, I've come up with ways to use all of the skill trees. And I feel like even the stealth skill tree, which seems a little bit weird to use as like a main way to go, but I've found ways to do that in the past and I've really had fun doing it. So, I think there are different ways to go. I think everybody's unique power is not as powerful, but that's fine because they have two other skill trees you can work on as well. For me, I'm not as big a hater on these differences in the character levels. I actually think it's a lot closer than people think. And I also think there are other mitigating factors that weigh in as well, which I'm going to talk about later. So for me, it's a big pro. I really like the characters in the game and I like how unique they are just using this three different skill system method.
1: And that is going to come up for me later, so I'll skip that for now. (laughs) But my number four is a bit more of a mix, and that's the Elder Ones that form kind of half of the puzzle you put together to create your game experience. So as I mentioned, there are two in the base set, which is all that we got for the review copy we got from uh, Simon. That includes Cthulhu and Hastur. And on the positive side, they have nice differentiation in the minions. For example, Cthulhu has this one big guy who kind of moves slowly toward you, but can be really devastating. Whereas Haster spawns a ton of sort of upgraded cultists that can be annoying. Uh, They have unique mythos cards. Haster tends to target your health a bit more. Cthulhu really tends to target your sanity and uh, they have unique ongoing abilities when they uh, come into the world. So that's all pretty cool. I, I like that part of it. Uh, even with only two of them in the base box, I do feel like the game plays fairly differently when I play with a Cthulhu as opposed to Hester. But uh, the negative side of things, I don't think 2 is a great value for a game like this, sort of a modular game. I feel like... There maybe isn't enough uh, kind of replayability and value in just two of them. It has made me very quickly want to order. I think uh, there are currently available or soon to be available two additional Elder Ones you can buy. If you got the Kickstarter, I think you already got at least one of them automatically. So that's sort of a negative that I think the value isn't great. But beyond that, uh, the, the biggest issue I have with the Elder Ones that does kind of pull it down to a mix is that they are very repetitive in that... Once they spawn, they go to the exact same colored things each time, and they don't really move beyond that. So although the episodes will change up kind of how you face them sometimes, a lot of times like once I get to the part where I'm just attacking Cthulhu, it just feels like I'm doing the same thing each time. Like, oh, I'm going to attack Cthulhu again. I'm going to attack Cthulhu again. And that, that adds to the feeling that, like the value is not as good as it could be specifically for the Elder Ones, which again are half of the modular kind of setup you're putting
0: together. Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. It didn't exactly make my list, and so I'll cover it a little bit more from your angle. I do agree that two seems like not a lot, but I also think, and this will get into our design discussion as well, that sometimes you can get too many enemies in the base set, and it's like, well, which one should I use with which scenario, and what am I supposed to do here? And I do like the fact that it's somewhat limited, and so you can learn them And also for someone like me who doesn't like learning a lot each time you play, I think the scenario itself presents new challenges each time. And so I'm really enjoying that. Yeah, maybe the second half or the end of the game can get a little bit samey. But at the same time, you're going to be at a different spot. You're going to have completely different items. You're going to have completely different minions on the board. Yes, the minions that come with Cthulhu and Haster specifically will be the same. But all the other minions on the board are scenario specific. So I do think there are some differences at the end of the game. I do agree, two is not a lot, but it's exactly what fits in the box, and I do like that. I think that if I had a choice, I'd rather keep the price of the base game down. That way, people can get to experience it and try it. And then, if they want to expand to more, they get to the point where you are, then you can buy more and expand to more at that point. I also think that as you get more great old ones, they won't feel samey anymore, and you won't remember exactly where they're going to spawn. And so, it'll feel different just because you'll have a harder time remembering exactly what this one specifically does.
1: Yeah, I think that's all fair. And I'll definitely get into the episode side of things later. I was just focusing on the Elder Ones here. Sure,
0: absolutely. So my turn to cover the XP Insanity System. I'm glad I said a lot on the last part because uh, I don't have a whole lot new to add here. I love it. I really think this is one of my favorite parts of the game where as you are getting closer and closer to losing the game, especially as you're playing against Cthulhu, which Mike said focuses a lot on getting your sanity levels to go up and up and up as you're getting closer and closer to losing the game, you get more and more powerful. So you can have these epic moments at the end of the game where you're doing these super cool things and you're rolling buckets full of dice. And, you know, it it just makes these cool end game moments and it leads to both things ramping up kind of simultaneously. Typically, now you could lose in other ways and I've certainly lost early with health and things like that. But again, that's an Topic for a different post number here, but the sanity system, the XP system, I really think it's neat that they move in the same direction. And getting back to what I said about the characters, I really love the choices with how you want to level up your character. And I've intentionally gone down some different tracks to see if they were viable and really done well on some tracks that I wouldn't have typically thought would have been as viable as they ended up being. So that's it for my number four. Mike, how about your number three? So my number
1: three is uh, my only full-on con for the game, and that's the swinginess of the difficulty. And this kind of fits into some other things I've already talked about and that I will talk about. But the balance of elements is fairly iffy. Uh, Characters I'll talk about later, but I do agree with Peter that while the balance isn't maybe horrific, like maybe someone might paint it to be... It's not great for the characters. Some are clearly better than others in several ways. I think more problematic in the balance is the sanity cards or the insanity cards can be very, very unbalanced. Uh, Some of them are almost entirely positive and just do ridiculously positive things, and some of them are almost entirely negative, and that can have a pretty major effect since you are leveling up frequently. But then also, the the dice themselves... I mean, yes, this is a dice-based game. This is par for the course, but they can be... Pretty swingy in kind of how they work. And yes, you have this uh, sort of set uh, mitigation system in your stress track, so you can like, take stress points to re-roll dice. But the thing is that you only have 50% successes on dice. You have a third these sanity symbols that can mess you up really badly if you get too many of them early. So I've had games where I'll go insane way too early, and other things happen. Um, also, a lot of the Mythos cards can just pop monsters right onto you. So I've had games where before the elder one spawn, because if you lose one character before the elder one spawns, the game is over immediately. Um, I've had games where a mythos card just like popped a monster onto me unexpectedly when I was injured, and that was it; I was done. So, so that doesn't actually bother me that much. Like it, it's a mythos game, Cthulhu, I get it. Like you'll just die sometimes. But on the other side of things, I've had many games, like a lot more than I think is good, where things got way too easy, and it just became kind of like a rote, like run over, kill Cthulhu in a single turn because I got too many upgrades and my powers are too good kind of a uh, play experience. So, so that kind of concerns me more. Like the difficulty can go either way, too easy or too hard based on cards, based on dice rolls, but I'm especially concerned about the unfulfilling end
0: game uh, you get into sometimes. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that a little higher on my list. So for now, I will talk about the puzzling nature of the game, which is my number three. It's interesting because you have very few action choices. As we said a couple of times here, you can move, you can attack, you can rest only if no monsters are in your space. And that's how you get your health back. And also you get this stress back, which is what allows you to reroll. But every mission within the game has a new set of challenges for you to go through. And yes, they aren't the end all be all. We talked about it with games like Horrified, where, yes, you're doing different things, but a lot of times it's really you have to roll a certain number of successes or whatever else, so it might feel samey. To me, it didn't, though, because the map presents unique challenges. There are different things you're doing within the scenario. So, yes, while a lot of times your goal is to roll a certain number of successes on certain spaces, I feel like the tactical puzzle is there, and it's different from turn to turn. And even within the same scenario, I feel like it could be different kind of to the swinginess Mike was just talking about, depending on the draw of those bad cards that come out. Because you have bad cards thrown in that deck from the great old one themselves, you have bad cards thrown in from the mission itself, plus... If you end up on a space by yourself at the end of the turn, you get to do investigation in that space, and you get to draw these kind of upgrade cards, and those will be different from game to game, because typically you're not going to get even close to all of them. And and even the order they come out will change the way things work, because some say, hey, if you've got this other one, then do this with this investigation card. So I really think it's kind of interesting how they come out, and it, to me, feels like a tactical puzzle. Now, yes, there is luck in it, and I'll get to that a little bit later on, but... I do still feel like you are trying to solve this puzzle and there is, I mean, to me, it compares very favorably to one of my favorite games from the last couple of years, which is Deep Madness. I love how every mission presents me with a unique puzzle and I have to do different things based on my character, based on the mission and based on the great old one. So for me, I like the puzzling nature of it, even though there is a lot of luck involved as well.
1: Yeah, and I'll add on, this didn't make my list, but sort of my number six was specifically within the puzzle how movement works in this game. And I don't think either of us mentioned this yet, so just to quickly say, unlike most games of this type, you are not at all restricted from moving by having like one or 50 monsters on your space. You can move your full three or more movement spaces with no worries at all. The thing is, at the end of your turn, you're getting attacked by every monster and they follow you. So if you move through three guys, you'll have three of them all on your space by the time you stop moving. But I love, love, love the tactical puzzle of managing that movement, moving enemies around tactically, getting them to other investigators. Uh, Peter mentioned the stealth skill. I'm not sure about the balance of it, but I do like kind of how you can use it to fine tune those uh, enemy encounters and everything. So yeah, I didn't make my list, but I agree with you. I think the puzzle here
0: is really, really cool. So what the stealth skill does is it lets you leave an enemy behind. Well, as you level it up, it lets you leave even more enemies behind as well. So you can move them away from somebody, almost like run them down a hallway and then leave them behind at some point during your movement as well. So that's where the stealth skill comes in. All right, my number two is going all the way back to Peter's
1: number five, and that is the characters. It did stand out more to me than uh, it did to him. And basically I agree with almost everything you said. I think on the positive side, the characters do feel pretty unique just with this one unique skill and the combination of two other generic skills. I find that they tend to fit into certain roles well. So the game will change based on which ones you choose. If you have one that is a very strong guardian who can protect other characters, that's going to be a different game than where you have someone who moves well and has stealth so they can get to the objectives for completing the episode better and getting the old one on the board. And then as opposed to a game where you have uh, someone who just does a crud ton of damage, the game does feel different when you play with those different characters. Now for me, I I agree with everything you said about the balance that it's not too terrible but it is that exact kind of uh, balance for characters that I really, really get annoyed with. That's why this is a mix for me and not a positive. To be more clear, it's not just that the things aren't balanced and that some tracks are better than others. But as you alluded to, the one that annoys me the most is that often, very often in my experience, the weakest track, the weakest of the three skills, is the one that is unique to the character. So I end up leveling the exact same stuff with one character that I do with another. And that's just, it's kind of like too many bones. Please don't present me with really interesting leveling choices. And then, you know, I'll freely admit I'm a min-maxer. I want to get the best possible character I can to increase my win percentage. But uh, with me being that way, I'm really annoyed when you give me choices that aren't like actual choices or aren't actually valid uh, for a winning strategy. Now, it's not terrible. It's still a mix because even if you don't level up your character's unique skill, you still start with that first level. So you'll still get that unique experience of that character. They'll still change up some things for you in your play. But man, I wish they had just gotten the balance a little bit tighter so that I really felt like not just that the characters are more different, but also that when I play the same character again, I'm really tempted to level up different things. Because usually, quite honestly here, unless I just want to experiment for experiment's sake, I'm leveling up these characters the exact same way, really regardless of the episode, because there just seem to be, to me at least, ideal upgrade paths and non-ideal upgrade
0: paths. And I wish they had uh, made that a tougher choice for me. I will say typically I go in thinking I know how I'm going to level a character, but it really does change based on what the current situation is for me. So I will find that those different missions do change up how I level my character, and not only the mission themselves, but just how many enemies are on the board at the time. Do I need movement more? Do I want extra actions more? Like, what is important to me at the time? I tend to be more of a tactical player that way than a strategic player, where I'm just looking at, okay, this is going to be my best thing at the end of the game. I really try to find out what's best for me in the moment when I level up. So I think I do have a little bit different experience with that. And so I think the nice part is you can go either way, though.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you. It's just I think some are so much better. Not not even, like, the entire track, but just certain steps on the track. Well, I do agree that there are sweet spots on the track, for sure. Yeah, like, like the, the, the movement... There's a movement skill that the second level gives you a free action, like a free movement action, a fourth action <laughs> every turn. And that's just absurd. Like, no other track gives you an extra entire action that easily, so... That one, I, it's, it's incredibly difficult for me not to level it up the first time, unless like there's something else I can uh, get some use
0: out of. Sure, unless you're faced with a specific situation, but you know you're going to come back to it and level it later. I do agree with that. Absolutely. All right, so Peter, what's your number two? Yeah, so my number two, you've kind of already alluded to in the last one. And for me, it is mostly a con as well, and that is the luck factor in the game. And it is really big. I mean, I I will say to the point where if you don't like dice luck and if you don't like luck in games, it's not going to be a game for you. Now, if you don't mind it, and you do roll buckets full of dice, so don't get me wrong, it's going to balance out eventually, but I know some people, when they get that one critical dice roll, and even our friend Jerry, who we play with, like... First turn of Marvel Champions the other week, he got, like, one bad card that went against them, And he's like, well, we may as well start over. I'm like, dude, we're one turn into the game. Like, it's not the end of the game yet. And, of course, we came back, and we, we did end up losing, but we were within one hit of killing the guy. And so, for me, this is the same thing. You're going to get those roles that just feel like, oh my gosh, that's it. It's the end of the game. And I'll be honest, I've had those rolls that are so bad that it actually was the end of the game. Like I fought a cultist that had like plus one green dice and the green dice aren't that bad. And I've gotten three hits on me. And I'm like, oh, now those two flame tokens I have on me, which I didn't think were that big a deal are a big deal. And I don't have any re-rolls left or I do re-roll and it still turns out bad. And so Yes, there are going to be moments like that, and I've had some frustrating moments and some things that have really set you back, and I think this is, for me, the biggest con in the game. I'll be going along and having such a good time and having fun and leveling up and going through my stuff, and then I'll hit just a bad set of dice rolls, and it'll put me so far behind that it's really hard to dig out of. Now, I certainly have dug out of it, and those moments feel epic, and I think that's why You see this a lot in games done by Eric Lang and people like Richard Launius, and they love these epic moments in game and these feel-great moments, but in order to have that, you also have to have these feel-awful moments, too. There has to be some stakes in it, and I think this game does that really well. You really do get these highs and lows and these swings in the game, and if you like that kind of game, I think you're really going to like it here, but if you don't like that, I don't think you're going to like it here. On the other end of that, turns are so quick, actions are so quick, it's so quick to set up, they don't mind that much luck in a game like this, but it's still not a 30-minute game overall. I mean it's still an hour, hour and a half game. So I don't know. I think it ebbs and flows well, but sometimes it won't. Sometimes it'll just all ebb against you, and sometimes it'll all ebb with you, as Mike said, and you'll just kind of roll through it. And for me, I don't mind that. I like actually feel pretty cool when I do that. I'm like, wow, Uh, okay. (laughs) But this time. Yeah, I was going
1: to ask how you felt about the easy wins, but you enjoy that. Okay, that's cool.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I'll be honest, I haven't had them as much as you have, or maybe they were easier than I realized they were. Like, I wasn't in any real danger at the end of the game, but I still felt like every turn I was, like, making critical decisions. So I don't mind it because of that aspect of it. Like, every turn I still felt oh man, I got to get through this or I got to figure out this puzzle. And so I was more focused on that than how easy or hard the game was going at the time. Although I will say I did notice when I was getting my butt kicked. All right, so my number one, Peter has
1: uh, mentioned it some already. It is number three, but it is uh, the episodes, which is the other half of kind of this modular puzzle with the Elder Ones. And again, there are six of these in the core game. And for me, this is a major pro. Definitely puts the game up quite a bit at the end here. And uh, these are just really cool. They each have unique objectives, as Peter mentioned. They each have a unique 15-card discovery deck that you are never going to get through on a single playthrough. And I love these discovery cards. So uh, to explain, you only get to draw one if you're not with any enemies at the end of your turn, which really incentivizes a certain kind of play where you either finish off the enemies or end your moves away from them. And the cards will almost always, so they are kind of repetitive in this way, but they'll almost always be like, uh, spend this much stress, remember that's your resource to reroll dice, to gain this ally or item that has this benefit. Or, if you can't do that, take this negative condition that sticks with you and does some kind of repetitive thing with you. So that's already cool. I also already like that, even though the character leveling up is kind of repetitive, that the individual episodes have their own upgrade options uh, built in. But then the other thing I love, I'm a theme guy, and there's not a lot of theme here. Like, (laughs) if you compare this to something like Eldritch Horror or Arkham Horror LCG with, like, big paragraphs of narration, no, you're not getting any of that here. Um, (laughs) But if you do want some sort of more emergent theme and some little storytelling, you're going to get it in these episodes and, again, in these uh, Discovery Decks. Because a lot of the cards, as Peter had mentioned, will interact with each other. And it's really cool. Like, uh, in my playthrough, I was playing where I found this uh, angry wife who was looking for her cheating husband. And I never found him. And she was just like a nice little ally to help me fight better. But if I had found him, she would have killed him immediately
0: and wouldn't have been able to get that ally. Which I just think is hilarious. (laughs) Yeah, I think it might be a couple, actually, that you find. So it's like... There's the wife and there's a couple. It's like, wait a minute. What is the wife? Why is she on the other end of the couple? Oh, I see what's going on here.
1: Yeah, so, so it's it's fun, and uh, like they have, in the same scenario, they have like a champagne glass, and if you get it, you can give it to this drunk guy, and he'll level you up really well. So it's just fun stuff like that, and even the uh, conditions you get. Like you can be cursed in one scenario, you can be ensorcelled uh, in, in another scenario, and then the Mythos cards will play with those things, so they kind of have like this interlocking effect, which when I play uh, modular deck games, that's my favorite thing, when they kind of introduce... Uh, ideas that build off each other and interlock with each other. So yeah, um, if even if the Elder Ones feel kind of repetitive, uh, the six episodes in the base game feel very different, uh, very fun to play through. And they do have, again, uh, either available now or soon to be available, a season two that comes with a bunch more investigators and another six episodes. And yeah, I mean, I think I might have to buy that and some more Elder Ones. Well, we'll get into my final thoughts later. So for now, I'll just say episodes really well done.
0: You know, it's funny We don't often combine on number one, but we definitely are here. Mine is the modular nature of the game. And it's funny that you keep comparing it to the modular deck system because I thought I was a genius when I was like, wow, this is really like a modular deck system game. Except in my mind, a million times better than any other MDS I've ever played before. Like, I love the way they combined the episode with the enemy With your characters, and you have to figure out that puzzle each time. I keep coming back to this, but I love the modular nature of this. It's genius. You take some cards to create this bad event deck from the great old one itself, you take some from the mission itself and you shuffle them together and they're really easy to separate out too. And the modular nature of this, it's so easy to set up. Literally, you have one set of monsters that's modular that is specifically from the mission itself and you have one set of monsters that is specifically for the enemy themselves. So even there, you might have four different monsters each mission, but there are two come from each. So you're getting this unique experience when you put this enemy together with this mission and it's going to play differently when you're playing with a different great old one but not in a way that is hard at all to do it is super simple to set up like yeah you got to set up some map tiles but even there it doesn't take that long to set up and it just goes along with the nature of the game to me this is one of those games that reminds me of app-based gaming and when I say that I mean Just one more turn, or if you think about like those civilization games, I want to just play one more turn, it'll only take 30 seconds to do my three actions and get through the enemy phase. Like each turn is very modular in and of itself. And even when I got done with the game, I immediately set it up and want to play another game. And it's funny because I talked to you last night and we were talking about recording last night, and I said, I know what my five points are, but I don't know my overall feeling on the game. Because I kept wanting to go back and play more and more and more. And I didn't know if I would get sick of it over time. And we'll get to that with my final thoughts. But I just love the modular nature of it. Every turn is modular. Everything you're adding in is modular. And no offense to the Saddler brothers or to, you know, Greater Than Games and their Sentinels of Multiverse system. But this game is a million times better in my mind than any of those other modular deck systems. And they do it better because it's not overly complicated but yet you you put things together and it feels unique so to me that is the best thing about the game if you're going to love this game that's why you're going to love it it presents you with a unique puzzle every time if you want this unique things that you're putting together this this is what does it for me it's this modular nature of it and i think they did a great job
1: all right so i'm very similar to peter in that i well actually i don't know if i'm similar but because i have no idea what your final thoughts are But I have been grappling with my final thoughts for this game, and I wanted to keep playing it and kind of get a sense for it. So before I get to that, I do think this game is interesting in that it does remind me of many other games, and and fairly diverse games. Uh, Peter already mentioned the other MDS games. You could say Sentinels of the Multiverse, or Street Masters, or Alter Quest, or Brook City from the Sadler Brothers. It also reminds me a lot, as uh, there's another one Peter mentioned, it reminds me a lot of Horrified. And the way you kind of combo some enemies together and you have, uh, well, I guess it's not really a different quest there. The enemies define the quest, but you have these objectives based on like the different choices you've made in the game and different characters. And then it does give me a vibe of Zombicide to an extent. Uh, but, you know, a good streamlined Zombicide like Zombicide Invader. So the question is, do I like it better than those games and how do I like it overall? Um, the swinginess does bother me. What I worry is some lack of variety in the Elder Ones definitely bothers me. If I was comparing this to a modular deck system game, man, if they... like, I know Peter probably wouldn't like it less if they did this, but if they took this exact same game, got rid of the dice to some extent, and instead gave me a unique deck of cards for each character that really separated them more, and kind of let me have a bit more tactical control over my turn through card play, oh my god, this game would be like top five for me easily, I think. Uh, As it is, I do really enjoy it. I'm very torn between trading it and buying every expansion available for it, and I honestly haven't figured out which side I fall on of that yet. And I know that's weird to say, but it's kind of like, do the frustrating parts bother me enough that I would rather play alternatives? Because with Zombicide Invader, with a lot of other really good games, and I think dungeon crawlers kind of compete with this too, there's certainly a lot of games in kind of the headspace of this game that I could play to get a similar experience. But at the same time, this is doing really cool things that are unique. The components, we haven't gotten to because that's not really part of the design, but the components are awesome, like really nice art, uh, great models, miniatures. Those are awesome. So, I don't know. I think in the end, I really do like this game. I think this is a solid design for me. I think it is probably a keeper. I think I am leaning toward buying a lot more content for it, spending, you know, 100 whatever dollars it is to get all the stuff they have so far. I don't know if I'll go all in forever, if I might sell it at some point. But for now, I really do enjoy this. I think it's a fun, as Peter said, very quick thematic romp. It's got nice tactical turns. Solo play is quick and fun. Cooperative play works really smoothly. Is it better than those other games? I don't know yet. We'll find out in our year-end episode when we do some direct comparisons, but for now, I'm definitely enjoying it. There are things that bother me. I've had negative experiences, but like Peter said, I'll just come back to it. I want to play it more. It stays on my mind, and with how many games are getting, you know, put in our front of us these days, how many games we're buying, that's a pretty special thing to have that whenever it happens, so... I think I like it a lot, but yeah, I don't know. These are probably my most conflicted, kind of
0: confused final thoughts I've had in a game in a while. Uh, So, Peter, why don't you go into yours? So, again, we were going to review it last night, and I said, Mike, hey, I'm going to burn through it. I'm going to play it a bunch of times, and that way we can review it, because I'm going to get this review out there. But last night I called him, or I texted him, and I'm like, Mike, I can't review it tonight, because I don't know my final thoughts yet. And, And I'll let you know a little secret, because I was having a blast. Every time I played it, I just wanted to play more. And I ended up playing. I told Linda, I was like, I just need to play a couple of turns. I went downstairs, and before I knew it, it had been three hours. And I set up a whole another mission. I'm like, I'm just going to set it up. I'm not going to play it. I'll just set it up. And that that just one more turn thing kept happening. And it's so easy to keep set up, especially solo on a table, and come down and just play one or two turns. But then you, in in my mind, I kept getting hooked. And even when it got frustrating for me, Like, I still wanted to keep going, and I still wanted to play through it, and I wanted to set it up again and play it again. For me, those are the signs of a great game, and there's a lot of luck. It's not going to be for everybody. I I mean, I want to make that very, very clear. Like, there are people that are going to hate this game. You know, anytime there is as much luck as is in this game, it's going to be very polarizing. But for me, because of the quick nature of the game and because it's so easy to set up and if I want to change things up, maybe I just change the great old one or I just change the mission and I can keep things the same but change it up. I don't know. For me, it was just really fun and easy to do. And you know me, I always complain about like difficulty of playing a game or when there's too much AI involved. I'm going to be honest with you. I I compare this game very favorably to Deep Madness where every mission plays completely different. I love the modular nature and I played four of the six missions already. And I mean, I'm only in the game for a couple of days now and I've just kind of torn through it. And I have had a good time with all of them. They've all felt very different to me. Not, you know, it's not game breaking, right? But I've got different characters each time. I've got a different mission each time I got a different, you know, I switch them back and forth to the great old one. So it was not difficult to do. It was not difficult to play, but yet I felt like each game was its own unique puzzle. And I just, I really liked it. So, Mike, you're not getting rid of it. If you're getting rid of it, it's going to me, not not anywhere else. So uh, maybe I'll be the one buying all the expansions. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, we can discuss that later. So for me, this is a high recommend. If you don't mind luck in your game, at least go out and try it. Don't believe the hype that the characters are that unbalanced. There's only one character that I thought was just kind of silly, stupid, where their power was. Basically, you can look at the card, like the event card, and decide you want to keep it or not. Because one of the major timers in the game are these, like, moving the great old one down the track. And if you can kind of skip those cards and just do the other cards, you can really mess with the timing of the game. So that was the only one to me that I was like, yeah, I don't even want to play with that character. But that's fine. It's one character in, what did they give you it? 8 to 10. 10. I mean, they gave you a ton of characters in the base game. So, I mean, that character didn't interest me at all just because I think it would mess with the timing of the game. But beside that, I mean, yes, some were a little bit stronger than others. But as you said, they really led to varied game experiences for me. Playing a game with tanks and guys that didn't do a lot of damage felt very different than playing with two damage dealers. All right, so I think uh, regular to strong recommends from both of us,
1: so definitely worth trying, uh, unless you are very luck as Peter said. Now, this game was a very successful Kickstarter with many, many Kickstarter exclusives, which is how uh, CMON generally runs their Kickstarter campaigns. So that's going to lead into our design discussion, or again, not quite design discussion, just kind of discussion overall. Uh, How do we feel about Kickstarter? How do we feel about exclusives and uh, Kickstarter content and sort of the fear of missing out FOMO, FOMO? Yeah, so Peter, why don't you start us off
0: uh, just any of those topics? All right. Well, I felt like I've talked a lot this episode. So let me kind of throw it back to you with this caveat. So we've gotten games like Mythic Battles Pantheon, where you get a million stretch goals and a million different things. We've gotten things like Zombicide Invader, again, another come on game where you have all these different expansions and all this different stuff. Do you like to throw that in right away? Do you like to play the base game first? What are your thoughts on just getting this overwhelming amount of content all at once? Oh, man, I can tell you my thoughts very easily. And by the way, this is, again,
1: not a design discussion. I'm not saying this is what you should or should not do for your game. This is very personal to me and my experience with these games. But I, generally speaking, hate, hate having a ton of content all at once. I don't like uh, the Kickstarters that throw 15 expansions, 20 boxes at me all at once. Some people will love that and just want to dive in. But for one thing, I tend to move from game to game quickly. Not like I never play a game again, but it'll take a while to come back to it. And I like the feeling of having sort of a catered experience out of the core box. So personally, a lot of the time, I'll just play with the core box. Uh, So even if I had, you know, 30 expansions for it, I'll just try to see how that works. And then I'll try to slowly add things in. But again, like really just looking at all the content when I get too much stuff can stress me out to the point where I almost feel like paralyzed and I don't want to play the game as much. It's a weird phenomenon, but for me, at least, that's kind of how it happens.
0: Yeah, I agree 100%. And the game that pointed this out to me more than any other is Mythic Battles Pantheon. We are very picky buyers. Like a lot of times, especially as designers, I'll print and play. If they have a print and play available, no matter how intricate it is, I'll print and play it. I print and played Scythe before it came out. I printed played Mythic Battles Pantheon and we had a great time with that game and we loved it. Then when we got the actual game in, there was so much stuff and it was just overwhelming and every unit had its own unique stuff and every game you're drafting from a pool of like a million of them and they're all unique and it just blew my mind and I I didn't even want to play it like we played it once in a game that I really enjoyed playing and I actually even enjoyed the tactical nature of the game itself I couldn't bear to think about even drafting an army again because of the overwhelming amount of options available, not just for me, but, you know, you get into counter-drafting and things like that, and it was just overwhelming, and I, it's not even that I didn't want to play. I didn't want to draft an army to play the game. I think if I was given an army, I would have enjoyed that game more, and if I had a limited number of options, like, oh, I know this guy counters this guy, and it's a rock, paper, scissors thing, I'd be fine with that, but when you have so many options, it just... It's overwhelming, and we got rid of that game very quickly, I think, because of that.
1: Yeah, and this does go into, there's different ways that this can kind of manifest. I think Mythic Battles was kind of the worst version where, as Peter said, everything is available. And if you play like with the rules as written, you can draft these huge number of options. And one thing is that increases setup time and teardown time. You know, because you have to dig through more boxes. You have to track down more miniatures. That's one reason I don't love, uh, in general, games that have oodles and oodles of miniatures. I'm not a Kickstarter person, personally, that like enjoys that more. That can actually be a turn-off for a game for me. I'll compare this to something like Deep Madness, which does also have a ton of content in the first Kickstarter. I think we got all of it. But in that one, at least it was kind of a more modular nature. So we just bagged each of the enemy types and their cards separately. And we would just like grab three bags and we'd be good to go. So sometimes the gameplay of a game, especially with these more modular games, allows you to kind of ignore the other stuff. It's like if we had more expansions for Cthulhu Death May Die... It's just another box we can grab and we can ignore everything else for the entire game. That's not going to stress me out. But again like, you know, or if all the cards get added into a deck, that's more annoying than just like picking a few decks. It's like, hey, here's a deck. It would have been 50 cards in the base game. Now it's 300 cards and you can't even shuffle it. <laughs> like that that kind of stuff is just
0: annoying to me. And and it's just a personal thing, but it definitely sticks out. Well, I mean, that's true even of our own game, right? Dark Dealings. It was meant to be two fifty-four card decks. And the campaign did so well that we kept adding cards and adding cards and adding cards. And to be honest, I mostly play with the base game there. Because for me, it's, I mean, my own game that I know all the rules to, I don't want to teach it to somebody with all this extra stuff added on. So for me, it can even detract sometimes from the nature of the game and even a game we designed you know but people wanted more and more and more so we kept giving them more and it got to the point where even I am overwhelmed with a game that we designed and this has happened by the way
1: for me even with games that aren't kickstarters or don't throw all the stuff at you at once a great example of this for me this is not a cooperative game but Core World, which is a competitive deck builder I adored the base game of that, and I was like, oh, I love this game so much, I should get expansions for it. And each expansion I added made me like the game less, and made me want to play it less, and made the game time longer. Another example is Galaxy Trucker. That was one of my top games of all time. The more uh, things I added, as Peter mentioned, the tougher it was to teach people, because suddenly you had a harder kind of barrier entry point in getting them to understand all the tiles available. So, yeah, I think expansion bloat can kind of be a danger with games in general, but that that's kind of a different discussion topic, so I'll let that be for now.
0: Well, it, it is, but it's not, and I think this is where the problem lies. The problem lies with the fact that Kickstarter and the way it's working and the way people want more and more and more—I mean, look at the latest Sadler Brothers Kickstarter— It wasn't reaching those stretch goals and giving people a million things. So people were hesitant to back it and hesitant to jump in. People wanted those million things. And I'll tell you, the problem for me with Kickstarter and the way it works is by giving people all these things up front and at once, you're not only learning a base game now, but you got these 50 things to add on top of it. I don't know. Like I said, and like we've been saying, it's overwhelming. Whereas it used to be you'd buy a game you get really good at it, you play it 50 times because there was only 100 games being released a year, not thousands being released in one month. And you get really good at it and then you'd want more for the game. Now what we're doing is giving people a base game and 50 expansions right out of the gate and we're overwhelming people with content before they even know if they like the game at all. You know, you're getting three or four expansions and you might not even like the base game. And so I think that's the problem with with where the market is right now and where it's kind of going headed forward.
1: Yeah, and I think like a lot of stuff with Kickstarter and as someone who's been on Kickstarter twice, I totally get it from a marketing standpoint. It's awesome (laughs) to sell a bunch of product to a person all at once and without the danger of them discovering they don't enjoy the product. It's like, hey, you want to buy three things instead of one thing? Give me your money. It totally makes sense to do that. And you often have the expectation as a creator that they won't even play all the stuff. So, oh, we didn't get to play test that one expansion as much? That's not a big deal. A lot of people will never even open the box up. You know? <laughs> it's, it's a negative way to kind of look at it, but I'm, I'm sure that some content creators are kind of thinking that way. Like, just this sort of cynical way of getting more money. And the same thing with exclusives. It's like, uh, you know, any way you can create the uh, value judgment that I want to kickstart it now... When, as a uh, project creator, I'm getting the majority of the money and not working through middlemen and everything, anything I can do to do that, like a Kickstarter exclusive, is going to be good for my bottom line. So I totally understand it, but I I think speaking honestly as a backer of Kickstarters, not as someone who's been involved in them, I would much rather have no Kickstarter exclusives stretch goals that are for everybody like they're just in the core game or component upgrades or like fun little art things like hey here's a free alternate art card or here's a free art print like all that kind of stuff I'm totally into but anything that kind of creates that negative experience for the aftermarket buyer or the retail buyer that kind of stuff, uh, even when I'm somebody who benefited from it, like, oh man, look how much I got for $100, now it would cost you $300, it still leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Like, I would rather things be fairer, but I, I get that that's not what makes a Kickstarter do well. It's not what being, brings in the big bucks. So I, I got to bow to the forces of the capitalist market and, and let people do what they want to do.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And it's funny, you said, you know, the cynical view from the game publisher side. Well, the cynical view as a game player side, if I play with one of your expansions or your Kickstarter exclusives, and I have a negative play experience, I'm like, well, yeah, clearly they didn't play test this. They just kind of threw it together as a Kickstarter add on. And I think a lot of people are starting to get that too. And so it almost devalues the product. Why do I want these exclusives when typically they are not play tests? I mean, I could say almost exclusively, they're never going to be as play tested as whatever is in the base game. They're they're adding these things on, and it's an add-on for a reason. Either it's a more complicated thing, which they couldn't quite figure out if the balance was right, or it's something they kind of threw together at the end to put, to, to put in. So I don't know why we value these things that are, are clearly throw-ins as much as we do, but you're right. I mean, it drives the market. You look at Kickstarter, what's the thing that sells? A million miniatures. Like that is the thing that it's all the top-grossing games have in common. They're all big miniatures games, and they're all giving you a million exclusives and add-ons.
1: Yeah, and speaking as a designer, it's an interesting position to be put in. And I've talked to other designers who have had games on Kickstarter. This hasn't happened to us because we haven't had like a huge miniature game blow up on Kickstarter. But they'll get more money than they expect, and the publisher will be like, "Hey, we need a new expansion," and it's like, "What?" <laughs> you know like maybe you worked for 3 years to create the content you currently have and they want 33% more content in a month and yeah you you're not going to do your best work you're not going to have your most innovative ideas it's not going to be as balanced it's just sort of the nature of the beast but it's not a nature it's it's not a beast that is conducive to great design work you know, I'm not saying that awesome things can't happen with a time pressure and like just being like, "Hey, you got to finish this right now." We, we've done some cool stuff in those situations, but yeah, I don't know. In terms of great design and passionate, kind of crafted experiences, I don't know if any of this stuff kind of uh,
0: lends itself to that. And I will say, as a game designer, and, and this is where it gets into a little bit of a design discussion, you can do things to head this off at the pass. You probably have a good idea how your game is going to do on Kickstarter. I don't I don't know even how to phrase this because I don't want to sound, you know, overconfident here. But we know our game spare parts is going to be pretty good and probably going to do pretty well. So we're already developing content for that up front because we don't want to be surprised down the road. Right. So let's say we created two more expansions for the game. And they never get used. It's almost better to do that if you think your game is going to do well than to have too little content and have to rush something out because people could judge your entire product based on that expansion or those promo characters that weren't playtested as well. So I think if you're getting an inkling, if your playtest feedback's coming back positive, positive, we love this game, we want more, when is it coming to Kickstarter, whatever else, and you're getting that kind of positive feedback on your game, you probably want to create more content than you have originally designed for and that you think is going to be needed in the base game. Because let's say, worst case scenario, it doesn't do as well as you think. It still might be that you have an opportunity to do an expansion in the future or something else. That content might not be wasted. And so I'd rather put extra work in and get that content good up front than put my name on something that nobody's going to enjoy. Yeah,
1: like, I'm pretty sure that happened to an extent with Street Masters. The original Kickstarter did well, but not, like, ridiculously well. So I think they had some extra content that became part of uh, the Aftershock expansion, and they just were able to kickstart it later. So, yeah, I agree with Peter. It's always better to have too much than uh, not enough, and too much
0: that you've actually playtested and kind of gone through. One, it always gets to that point in the playtesting, too, when you're like, well, everything's pretty good. What are we going to do now? And, and, you know, the game's not ready because the art's not ready. The graphic design's not ready. There's a lot of things still to be worked on, and it's kind of dead time. Now, certainly, you can move on to another project. But, I mean, the kind of game designers we are, we think our games are going to do well. And, I mean, maybe it's just overconfidence or whatever, but... That's the time where you can create more content for your base game rather than, and this is a mistake I think a lot of us make as well, keep going back and grinding on that base design because you can grind it to the point where it's not as good as it originally was. And you can overdevelop a game. We've done that many times. (laughs) Sure. But I mean, it's all part of the learning process and that's why we're here. And that's why we're doing this podcast is to share our experiences with you guys. Like we've made these mistakes before and we're still making them and I'm sure we're going to make them in the future. But at least this is an opportunity to talk them out loud. And you and I have never discussed this out loud before. So maybe we'll change how we work on things going forward as well. And that seems like a good place to leave it.
1: So, yeah, keep backing those Kickstarters. Uh, Make your own choices, I guess, for what you think is a best practice on the platform. And uh, try out Cthulhu Death May Die. We both liked it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, this was... uh, These last couple weeks have been good. Tainted Grail, Cthulhu Death May Die. I feel like we've had a strong end of the year. I'm excited. Oh, man. I mean,
1: if we had... (laughs) I can't say the exact weeks because I forget when we did like Marvel, for example. If we had done our end of the year episode like two months ago... (sighs) I don't know what my top ones would have been.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's definitely gonna
1: be a tough, tough
0: competition. Now. Well, it would have been like, Journeys of Middle Earth running away.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say it probably would have been Journeys in Middle Earth straight up, and that's it. But 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 now it's gonna be it's gonna be a challenge to to go through and, and figure it out. So stay tuned. Uh, I think probably in the next week or two we're gonna do a quick uh, recap of PAX Unplugged and what we played there, and then we'll be doing our year end episode,
0: uh, fitting it in with uh, whatever Steve's doing on his uh, episodes. And we also know the beginning of the year is typically a slow time for new games coming out, so we'll probably be covering some old stuff at the beginning of the year, and we also look forward to this, co-op cast covering competitive games. We may talk about our top competitive games as well, and kind of compare and contrast and say why we like co-op games so much, but what we like about these competitive games and maybe makes us as cooperative players driven towards some of these competitive games as well. So we've got some ideas for you guys on the horizon. I'm going to have to play some more competitive games so I can participate fully in the discussion. Well, we got packs. Don't worry. You'll be playing some competitive games there. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next week with another top five list. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co op Shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week with another Top 5 list.
1: So, uh, Cthulhu Death May Die will be in the running for potentially top game of 2019 for the uh, co-op cast. That's not what we are.
0: So that's it for my number four. Mike, how about your number three? Yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> all, right. Uh, all right. So, Mike, why don't you explain how those insanity cards work? Because I don't think we cover that in the rules overview. I did say that. I said it in my insanity thing. Oh,
1: did you? I, I talked about him in number five already. Sorry. Keep going then. Hey, Mike. Yeah.
0: I'm glad Cthulhu's not around because I'm not sure that I'd be the one to kill him. <laughs> I think we'd have our brains eaten. Yeah, I'd be running the other way. I, I wouldn't be an investigator.
1: That's for darn sure. <laughs> Definitely not a insane fighting investigator.